Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host for today's show and third episode in our summer series of interviews, Stefan Rolnick. A few months ago, ex-Labour Minister Lord Peter Hayne and Daniel Levy, an ex-advisor and negotiator for the Israeli government with Palestine and now head of the US Middle East Project, wrote a 2000 word piece called Labour the Left anti-Semitism, Israel and Palestine, a way forward. And in it, they pick apart how Labour's anti-Semitism crisis is actually intertwined with the debate about Israel and Palestine. And they pick apart how the leadership of our party needs to deal with anti-Semitism in order for us to be better advocates for Palestine. So last week, I sat down with Daniel to expand on his piece, to find out what Zionism means to him, why the Israeli left is struggling, and how that fits in with the Labour Party's current crisis. You'll notice a couple of times in this episode, Daniel and myself stumble a little bit, but I actually wanted to leave some of that in because I think throughout the episode, you can hear us both trying to work something out in real time. We talk about the tension between Israel's identity as a Jewish state and a democratic state with what I thought was a surprising conclusion. We talk about how and why elements of the far right have come to see Israel as a political asset. And I would very much recommend listening through to the end where Daniel is really honest about the way the violence has affected him personally. Another painful topic we address is the Jewish community's response to Jeremy Corbyn. Daniel has some nuanced opinions about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and I think some of us might find his arguments challenging, but I think it's really important that we hear them out. I hope you find it as enlightening as I did. Please, of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so we can reach as many progressives as possible. And without further ado, my conversation with Daniel Levy. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. So can you kick us off? Tell us a little bit more about the work that you did in the Israeli Labour government. Well, I mean, having grown up in this country, I, I moved to Israel in 91, just before Labour came into power in Israel under Prime Minister Rabin, and actually not as a government official, but as part of my military service in Israel, I served in the Israeli negotiating team under Rabin on what was called the Oslo B agreements, the back end of which is when Rabin gets assassinated, two days after I finished my military service. Wow. Yeah. Um, then later on, as a political appointment, I worked in the government of then Prime Minister Ehud Barak 
whose short-lived tenure was from 1999 to 2001. Uh, and I was advisor in the prime minister's office for a period of time, and then an advisor to the then justice minister, Yossi Balin, during which time I was part of the team that negotiated what were then called the Taba talks at the very end of 2000. What was it like to be working on what is essentially one of the most difficult diplomatic environments almost in the world? Well, those were two quite different experiences. It was a, as a non-political appointee during the Rubin talks and as someone much more junior then, not that I was so senior just a few years later, um, but as someone much more junior then, it was a, 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 a strange experience. I, I had also been involved in track two efforts with Palestinians beforehand. And when I first turned up for the negotiations, uh, many of the Israeli members of the team looked at me, uh, who is this guy who knows a number of our Palestinian interlocutors <laughs> having just arrived? But I would say that at the time, I was working with people who were in a problem-solving mindset. And I think if you're in a problem-solving mindset, of course, you know you've got to package this to your domestic audience, but you also understand that the other side have to package it for their domestic audience. So it's a joint problem-solving effort. So we weren't in what one might call a point scoring, a zero-sum game environment at that time. And that makes all the difference. It was, it was a phenomenal learning experience as well. Well, I want to take us kind of back to basics before we get into too much detail about that. So not too long ago, you and Lord Peter Hayne released a statement called Labour, the Left, Anti-Semitism, Israel and Palestine, a way forward. And I think one of the best things about the piece is that you tackle three issues in one go, because I think the way they manifest in real life, for better or for worse, seems to be so interlinked. So there's there's three issues I want us to explore here. There's Zionism, what it is and its origins. The second one is the political situation on the ground right now in Israel. And then the third one, which seems to be interlinked with that, is Labour's anti-Semitism crisis. So to start us off, how would you explain Zionism to someone who's never heard of it before? With great difficulty. Yes. <laughs> actually, at its most basic level, it is the notion that being Jewish is more than a religion. It is being part of a people. There is a peoplehood there. And that people should have a right to self-determination. Now, Zionism emerged from late 19th century Europe, a period of nationalism, a period of anti-Semitism. And then the third ingredient was, if you want to pull those together from a Jewish collective perspective, there's probably only one place you can do it, which is Zion. So as with most nationalisms, there's elements of imagined history, imagined communities. There's nothing unique in that. Uh, but rather than dwelling on 100 years plus of Zionist history, if one brings it forward to contemporary relevance, Zionism was one of a number of competing strands vying for Jewish support, not actually something that had the majority of Jews supporting it. It was a minoritarian trend. Post-Holocaust, by default, as, as one can understand in the circumstances, Zionism becomes the, okay, there needs to be a, a shelter, a place where, on a practical level, Jews coming out of the camps, displaced Jews who weren't going to go to their previous homes in Europe, uh, could go to. So there's an argument to be made that on a practical level, Zionism's moment had come. There is also, though, the real lived experience 
of Israel 70 plus years later, which for Palestinians has been uh, an unmitigated and unrelenting experience of having been dispossessed and discriminated against. Hence, not an easy thing to define. And, and, and therefore, the idea that, that Zionism means all kinds of things to different people, and even the idea that one can be super reductionist about it, is a, is a hard thing to grapple with, which doesn't mean that it's either acceptable or smart to simply use it as a term of abuse either. But it is, it is something that's controversial, let's say. Is that why you think emotionally speaking, this is such a difficult issue because you have, on one hand, the current day experience of the Palestinian people having you know, land dispossessed by an Israeli government and the experience of that. But it's actually impossible to disentangle that completely with what happened less than 100 years ago to the Jewish people who, like you say, you distinguished it, there's a kind of religious element to Zionism, but there's also a pragmatic sense, a political pragmatic sense in which people felt that they needed to move to Israel for safety. Is that, is that tension why this problem is so difficult, do you think? That is certainly one of the reasons. I'm sure we'll talk about politics and power relationships, and those are incredibly important in any conflict situation, certainly in this one. But yes, I mean, I think if one has a perspective that says whether it's from a Jewish support for Israel, the idea of Israel, the need for something that approximates Israel, or whether it's a Palestinian perspective that says, that's why my family are refugees. In the name of that, in the name of that, I can't return home. In the name of that, someone who's never been to that country can get citizenship and my family who are from there aren't even allowed in. If one is unable to at the same time hold in one's head both of those truths as they are understood by the respective communities and then also hold in one's head the facts. And the facts are unpleasant for, for someone who, is, who cares about Israel and is sympathetic to Israel because of, 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 of Israel's policies. But one has to be able to wrap one's head around those things. The, the real lived experiences of people who've come out of, of the traumas of Jewish history, people who continue to live the struggles of Palestinian reality, if if one's going to get anywhere, and that's that's not something that that <laughs> that uh, we see enough of. In this interview, we're going to try and hold both those truths in at the same time, and I just want to move kind of over to one side just for the moment, and just to explain some of our listeners who might not be so aware, why would it be hurtful for some people when someone like Richard Bergen? says Zionists are the enemy of peace in Israel and Palestine? Well, I think we, you know, we've entered this arena whereby Zionism, Zionists, rather than being held to a political definition, is, is simply held around as a, as a term of abuse. It can be, and I'm not saying it necessarily was in this instance, I don't know the person, it can be a substitute for Jews. 
Most, not all by any means. There are many Jews who don't define themselves as Zionists, but most, most Jews do. And so I think if one is going to say the policies that Israel has pursued in adhering to its own definition of its Zionist goals are incompatible with peace, that's a, that's a position that has a lot of weight behind it and that one can debate. I think everything is context. Yeah. related, right? And so in a given context, to make a, an all-encompassing statement about Zionists without putting it in that sense, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the audience was either, you are at the very least likely to bump up against the sensitivities of a, na- a large cohort of, of, of Jews, Jewish communal members, Jewish Labour Party members, who may well be your allies in much that has to do with what's going on in the Middle East. So there are, there are politically acceptable and accurate ways of going about that argument. There are ways that are, at the very least, lacking in sensitivity and that are probably uh, self-defeating because you are shutting down a space for conversation. And, and, and the attempt to shut down spaces for conversation is happening on all sides. So let's try and get those two ideas side by side again. So in your introduction in that piece that you wrote with Lord Peter Hain, you make the argument that the Jewish attach- attachment to Israel, Zionism, does not contradict the Palestinian struggle for freedom. What's your basic argument for that? Well, I think what we were trying to argue is that you can care about Israel you can care about the largest Jewish community in the world, which is in Israel, without that saying anything as to the political endgame, the political dispensation, the equal allocation of political rights, which uh, needs to happen if there's going to be peace in the future. Clearly, if one's talking about an exclusive attachment to control of the land, control of the resources, who has rights on that land, then that does contradict the ability to Palestine, for Palestinians to have their freedoms, have their rights. But I think that an innovative way for people on the left to think about Jews and Israel, to put it in those terms, an innovative way would be to say, let's, let's understand that that is the largest Jewish community in the world. Of course, uh, Jews around the world, they may have family members, they may not, are going to care about what happens to that community. Of course, this is a place that's been seen as a refuge of last resort for Jews. So, of course, that would say something to Jews who carry that historical experience with them. But let's not confuse that with lumping the Jewish community together as being supportive of a particular set of straight state structures or a particular state ideology. Now, it may be the case that actually most Jews are comfortable with the state structures and the state ideology, but I think one is is able to enter a conversation from a position that allows for more interesting outcomes if that's the approach one takes to it. And then and then you're in a in a space where where you can tease out what is compatible and what is not compatible with Palestinians achieving their their deserved full rights. 
Great. Well, we're going to explore that in just a second. But for now, we're just going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So... One of the interesting things about Israeli politics right now is for me, when I was growing up and hearing about my grandparents' attachment to Israel, it was always a very left-wing attachment. I think some of my grandparents' cousins even went and started the first kibbutz in, in Israel. And that, that's kind of the prism through which I saw it. But when I look at the conversation about Israel now, the Israeli left doesn't seem to get that much airtime. And so I just want to cover that now. What is the essence of what it means to be on the left in Israel? That is quite a question. <laughs> it speaks to a real dilemma, fissure, challenge on the Israeli left today. And I have friends of mine on the left today who, friends who would self-define as being on the left today, for whom it's just about another push. Can we tease out a majority in, in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, and then one can begin to change the direction of travel, go back to a two-state peace. There are other friends who would self-define as, as, as left in Israel today who are basically saying being, really being on the left in Israel today is being a dissident. Mm -hmm. it, because the, the, the zeitgeist, uh, the center of political gravity has shifted so far to the right that they can't recognize in most of what calls itself center-left, mm -hmm. and, and most wouldn't define themselves as left, most of what calls itself centre-left parliamentary politics, they wouldn't be able to find much that's left yeah. in that. So it, it, the, the, the tension there is really between those who say there's been a, a, a misstep. It has to do with the excessive empowering of a hard right. And one can go back to a simple notion of withdrawing some of the occupation uh, allowing for there to be some kind of Palestinian state, reviving really uh, the liberal democratic institutions uh, that are still there in place in Israel, but, but filling them with meaning again, versus those who say 
after 70 years of lived experience, there, there is a fundamental tension between a Jewish state and a democratic state, mm-hmm. and we can't run away from that, mm-hmm. and that Israel has to go through its own civil rights revolution. The idea that there is a parliamentary left that does not make common cause with the Palestinian minority in Israel, who self largely, almost entirely self-define as non-Zionist, who are 20% of the population, but who are never included in coalitions. So that's the tension within uh, the left in Israel today. And, And I think amongst the younger generation, you increasingly have an appreciation that whether you're going to call it post-Zionist or not, Mm. and many would say, let's not go there on the definitional stuff. But in practice, we have to come up with a progressive notion of what is Israel. It can't be an occupying power, and it also can't be uh, something that excludes and structurally discriminates against its own Palestinian minority. Mm. I mean, you've just touched on this there, and I'm sorry if I meander here, but because this obviously this is quite a complicated subject. But one of the words you used there was dissident, and I think that speaks to two things. I think it speaks to the destabilization that comes with kind of any person who is a kind of illiberal Democrat, say like Netanyahu, but like people around the world who equate the meaning of a state with themselves in order to polarize a country like that. And it seems like that's one of the factors that um, the left on Israel is dealing with. And you've just touched on this briefly, but just to see if we can bring some more out of this, that the idea that obviously every country has a founding myth that both sides of the political spectrum can speak to. So in the United States, obviously that's a very good example that there's a contradictions of how it was founded and it was founded on, you know, also on, on slavery and, and the rest of it. But then you've got this contingent on the left that points to the constitution and say, that's the real meaning of America. I'm trying to work out what it what it is about the founding of Israel that perhaps makes it difficult for the left now that Israel, and, th- and, th- and this is not to say whether that's good or bad, perhaps you could say it's, it was necessary that it was founded based on a, on a fear of persecution, which, you know, at the time for many of us seems like a perfectly legitimate reason to found a state. But does that prevent, present the left on Israel with a dilemma when you talk about identity that the left is kind of about hope and pushing for something extra? Is, is it that the left in Israel hasn't found that language to move on from that fear that's preventing them from electoral success, do you think, as well? I think that is very much part of the story. And the question then becomes, so the question then becomes, if one maintains the existing structure, given that Israel has created a a, a one space reality in the occupied territories, is the way beyond it to, uh, to revisit two states. And therefore, some would say that the way you can get a healthy Israeli society, and this is a very much minority position uh, on the Jewish-Israeli side, the way you can get a healthy society is to say, okay, there's Palestinians are not going to live without rights. There will not be a massive displacement of, uh, of Israeli settlers. We are all going to share this one political space. And to get beyond classical Zionism, there was a strand of binational Zionism, and to get beyond two states. That that may be an emerging thing, as two states looks more and more difficult, but that's certainly on the margins today. I think what what more 
the more mainstream left in Israel would, would point to is, in their foundational myth, the uh, Declaration of Independence, which talks about equality. And so that, that is the, the torch um, that is held up. I think the difficulty is uh, that you stack that up against so many other things. And one of the ways in which uh, the right narrative has been very smart is to say, we are the descendants, not just of what was called a revisionist Zionism, Jabotinsky, the, 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 I won't go into this, uh, the founders of, 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 what, of what became uh, the governing the Kut Party and the right in Israel. But they say, we are the true heirs of labor Zionism, of Ben-Gurion, because they were all about your borders end where, where your towns end, where your physical presence on the ground ends, where your settlements end. They were all about kicking out the Palestinians. It wasn't the right that were in power in the war of independence, in, during the Nakba, um, when, when the, the, the largest um, Palestinian refugee population was created. It wasn't the right that was in power when um, a military government was imposed on the Arab citizens of Israel who stayed behind, those who, who, who remained after the Nakba from 48 to 66. So they claim, with, with unfortunately, just a little too much validity than one would like, that they are the true heirs. And so, yes, this is about articulating something that most of them mainstream so-called left in Israel has, has, has really failed to do, which is what, what would an inclusive Israel look like? What would an Israel that, that really puts democracy first, that is able to make the Jewish part of it non-discriminating, certainly for the Palestinians who are living under occupation, so you clearly have to end that, but also non-discriminating towards those who are citizens of Israel, mm. who are Palestinian, and how do we deal with historical justice issues? And so the zeitgeist in Israel today, and, and, and Netanyahu on the world stage has played a leading role in this, mm. in the move towards ethnocracy over democracy. And that's where some really unsavory parts of the global right see in Israel a role model. Right. And I just, I wanted to ask you about that because you alluded to what comes next in terms of two-state solution. And, and I think one of the more disturbing things has been to see some of Israel's staunchest allies across the world, like a, a group of people on the hard right in the States, especially. And I think that's led a lot of progressive Zionist people to question what it means to, to be a Zionist. Also, I think when you look at the, one of the, one of the easy things, one of the easy positions to take in politics has been just to advocate for a peaceful two-state solution with a democratic Palestine. And I think it's one of the thing, things that we kind of repeat over and over again. And while the situation changes and there's a certain amount of honest conversation I think we need to have about what comes next. And that kind of destabilization that's come about with Netanyahu defining Israel as Netanyahu and married with the, the elements of the hard right in America that sees the right of Israel as a as a as a really important part of its you know every, you know everything its its strategy more kind of in terms of more foreign policy as with that factor it seems that a two state solution is becoming 
more and more difficult. And I know there's lots of people here in the UK who have advocated for, and across the world who have advocated for uh, uh, two states, one one confederacy, or whether you know it's just going to have to be a one state solution. And what comes to mind first is, well, is there a constitutional, is there a kind of constitutional tightrope that we can walk that can protect the rights of all citizens if we are heading towards a one state solution? But I wonder, is is the more important question that regardless of whether it's one state or two state or one confederacy, two states, is the one thing that is going to make either of those make or break a grassroots understanding? Is this, as well as a political problem, actually an emotional and psychological problem? And should we be doing that grassroots work now to build those ties between communities to prepare for whatever outcome we get down the line? Sorry, that was a long so, way so of we're bedding that. down for an all-nighter. <laughs> uh, let me start with with where you with where you left off, because the first thing that has to be done, probably on the grassroots level, is and, and this this sounds painfully obvious, but the, the rehumanization of the other. I think there's been such a yeah, you know, on both sides, but but power counts, and and I'm not a a both sideism person, and so I see how poisonous the dehumanization of Palestinians has been inside Israeli society, while Israel has the power as well. And I think if one brings it back to uh, the UK, and I'm sure we'll go here, but I think there has been a a permissive environment uh, allowed or even enabled, um, which has also gotten really quite ugly uh, vis-a-vis Jewish members and the Jewish community here. But I also think it's very important that the antidote to that is not the criminalization of Palestinian political consciousness, is that Palestinians have to be able to speak to their experience um, vis-a-vis Israel. And my, my experience is that, that Palestinians are very able to do that in a way that does understand um, and and is, mo- is not dismissive or vilifying of, of Jews and Jewish collective experiences. It's often the a cohort of the fellow travelers who are more uh, indulging of, of those things. But I also want to assert that alongside the need to come to terms with with rehumanizing, with what one does at a popular level, what one does at a civil society level, how one gets beyond the, the the multiple psychological traumas involved here. This is political. This is about political leadership and political solutions. In this country, we're we're it's a political effort to to have convinced us to go down that Brexit route. If I use a you know what's on everyone's <laughs> mind at the moment, to go down that Brexit route in the first place. Um, and now to, to, to perhaps go down the, a no deal Brexit route it, and it will be a political effort 
that will be needed to convince Israelis that hyperventilated nationalism, that 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 the kind of um, policies that are being pursued um, are wrong, and it's extremely disturbing um, to me that. Israel has the what Israel, what the Jewish state has come to symbolize for, for, for many, and that and that this is being advanced, embraced, hugged with pride by Israel's own leaders, is essentially a supremacist uh, position. Of, of in this case, why why are white supremacists? Why is the alt right both anti-Semitic and pro-Israel? It's anti-Semites for Israel. Why do why do they carry Israeli flags at EDL rallies? Now, part of that's to provoke, but part of that is yeah, we want to be like them. If they, if it's acceptable for them to place Jewish rights above other rights, why shouldn't it be acceptable for us to place white rights? And Israel should be leading the struggle against that rather than either happily going along with it and standing with it, or in a mealy-mouthed way, finding ways of both adhering and distancing. And um, that is why one of the reasons why uh, there really needs to be a fundamental rethink in Israel about, about what is the project. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave that just there for just a second, because I want to bring it now very briefly to what's happening in the Labour Party, because that was also a big part of your statement. So firstly, I know personally lots of well-meaning people who I know aren't anti-Semitic, who look at you and say, what's what's really going on? Is there is there really a problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? And there's lots of different potential explanations for that. And But I know that one of them is actually simply that for people reading about it briefly in the news, it seems quite complicated. So for those who aren't sure where it is, how it exists, or who don't see it, how would you characterise the problem the Labour Party has right now? I think there has, look, anti-Semitism, as with all forms of racism, I'm not going to go down that right <laughs> um, <laughs> It's terrible. Uh, right. Is pervasive, sometimes more, sometimes less, um, in society. Uh, is there, at least, sometimes pervasive. At times of increased social stress, increased economic distress, increased alienation, th- those kinds of things tend to find more of a voice, uh, whether it's and I'm, I'm not drawing hierarchies here, uh, Islamophobia, uh, racism targeting the, the Black Asian minority communities, anti-Semitism. I think the slightly curious thing that has happened uh, recently is that there seems to have, have, have been a, an uptick in what is actually quite a classic anti-Semitic left-wing trope, which is uh, to see Jews as a class enemy, stereotypes of Jews as bankers, as the the capitalist class, 
as, as some kind of nefarious plotting global conspiratorial uh, element. And that has been given voice to. Um, and somehow the, the purported attempt to curb that on the left, on the part of the Labour Party leadership, um, has not been effective. And in fact, one sees more and more abuse of, of, of Jewish members of the Labour Party who are active on the left. Now, how much of that can you attribute to the party leadership? It's a bit of an open question for me. I mean, I think clearly one, one, one could have been uh, more effective at clamping down on it. But, but I also would say that, that, that this is sadly part of the media environment we live in. So when you compare numbers, and I'm not belittling the phenomenon, but when you compare numbers, we didn't have the ubiquitous use of direct social, direct messages. We didn't have social media. We didn't have Twitter feeds where people can really go at it kind of anonymously. So I think that's, that's part of what's going on. The other, th- I mean, the, the thing that's happened is it seems to have, have gone well beyond the criticism of Israel. It's almost like this is less about Israel and more about some visceral hostility to Jews. But, and the other thing that's going on is I think some of the Jewish communal response has been uh, counterproductive, self-defeating, and has fed the beast. So I, wanna, I wanted to ask you about this because um, there's a really uh, interesting line in a novel by Philip Roth called The Plot Against America, which people should read if they haven't already. And Philip Roth's character says that anything can happen to anyone, but it usually doesn't until it does. And the point of the book is it explores different reactions of members of the Jewish community to the threat of anti-Semitism in their government, which ranges from complete denial and collaboration to hysteria. And I think that this quote really captures, albeit in a completely different context, the kind of inherited anxiety of many Jews around the world about how you protect themselves. Um, And like you've just alluded to, there's been disagreements within the Jewish community about how to respond to what many people see as a failure of leadership, at the very least in the Labour Party on anti-Semitism. In an article last year, you said the response of the mainstream Jewish communal leadership has been so hyperbolic that it's not only unhelpful, but risks becoming counterproductive, which is essentially what you just said. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? And do you think that's still the case as as you thought it was when you wrote it? I must admit, I go back and forth on on the extent to which it, it could be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not being naive in having uh, faith in this country. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when the chief rabbi talks about, makes comparisons, the former chief rabbi, sorry, Jonathan Sachs, makes comparisons to uh, Enoch Powell, between Corbyn and Powell. When the editorial at the beginning of August in, in the leading newspaper of the Jewish community, the Jewish Chronicle, says Jeremy Corbyn is a greater threat to minorities than the BNP or the National Front ever were. I think you're cheapening the threat of anti-Semitism. And I think you're doing a couple of things. Um, I hope unintentionally, but I'm with some people 
I'm not even sure uh, they deserve the benefit of the doubt in that respect. And, and the things that you are doing, I think, are, first of all, to some people, I think you're sending a signal. You, you know what? If, if, if this is, if some of what is being called anti-Semitic, because I think there are occasions where people have been gone after unfairly or in which uh, there has been, um, you know, an ex- a real exaggeration involved, then I think people may say, well, I'm not, you know, maybe anti-Semitism isn't to be taken seriously because the communal leadership doesn't seem to, 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 uh, to be, to be serious. And I think, um, I think that is a mistake. And the second thing is one risks feed, one risks provoking, one risks, which is a very difficult thing to say, but one risks feeding into a narrative that, there are people, I think, on the left who do not see themselves as anti-Semitic, do not want to be um, hostile in any way to Jews, and who are perhaps being provoked and being gone after. And it is it is beginning to confirm a hypothesis that this isn't really about anti-Semitism. This is about bringing down a particular Labour Party leader at all costs. And this is also, and this is why it's, it's so important to also bring it back to things to do with Israel, that this is about Israel advocacy at all costs. Uh, the members of the British Jewish community can have whatever positions they want on Labour Party, Tory Party. That's their politics. They're citizens of this country. We are citizens of this country. Uh, and vis-a-vis Israel. Uh, but I think it's that there is also, as a community, there are a collective set of concerns to do with the well-being of the community, the security of the community, the ability to run Jewish schools, the ability to have uh, shechita and kosher food, um, a number of things that are on a communal agenda. And that communal agenda must not be subsumed either to an Israel advocacy agenda, where it doesn't affect the well-being of the community, or to a party political agenda. And where this Labour Party leadership have stepped out of line, absolutely go after it. But I don't think it's a good idea to cut off all links. I don't think it's a good idea if a leader, and and I don't think he's shown leadership on this issue, but if a leader, as he has, has turned around and said, here's here's what I'm going to do to make sure there is no danger, no threat to the Jewish community, I think the Jewish communal response should be to engage. So just to finish off, we're going to bring it back to Israel. And I just want to touch on a quote from Israeli novelist David Grossman. Um, He says, so much of politics is emotional here, speaking about Israel. And the two peoples involved are very emotional. So you must be attuned to emotions very precisely. But the bottom line must be logical. You must not surrender to the primal urges of revenge. I just do not see a better solution than a two-state solution. He goes on to say, I'm more sad and maybe desperate, but not in a way that paralyzes me. Maybe I cannot afford the luxury of despair. And so I want to talk about despair because I think it's an emotion that we all feel from time to time. What keeps you going when it feels like progress has been so limited since then? I'm not allowed to hide behind the arc of history bending towards. (laughs) Uh, 
actually, when you quote David Grossman, I do feel despair because I always, in my mind, go back to Israel's military action in Lebanon in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when I was in Israel, I was still living there. Um, seeing David on a Friday, I believe it was, in Tel Aviv, uh, in a demonstration against the continuation of that war. Unfortunately, rather than ending the war on that day, the war continued for just a few more days, enough days for David's son to be killed in a tank incident, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the nature of the incident in Lebanon. So I feel despair on David's behalf, actually, and I always go back to that to that weekend. But David's carried on the fight and uh, and has been a clarion voice in the struggle for peace. And I draw sustenance from my Palestinian and Israeli friends who believe in justice, who I think are doing quite remarkable things day in, day out. But I also, look, the, the pendulum is swung in the opposite direction. Sadly, I don't think it automatically swings back. But I think there is an opportunity partly born of the overreach, the overreach of the right in Israel, the overreach of let's call them the ethnocrats internationally to try and pull this back. And, and, and this is what's interesting to not see Israel in exceptional terms. If we're going to pull things back in a direction where, where the nationalist supremacists are not going to win, then they shouldn't win over there either. I think almost as easy as a place to retreat to as the arc of history is is to talk about uh, young activists, but I do see a, a, a different thinking in a, in a in a younger generation in Israel uh, on the Jewish side. The extent to which there's an understanding of the need for a much more robust critique of what needs to be done. It's not simply a return to the old two-state thinking in the following way. If 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 the idea was that two states solves a demographic problem of Arabs, then you've already got it wrong. Because once you see Palestinians as a demographic threat, just like anywhere, you see immigrants as a democratic threat in this country, Palestinians are indigenous, not immigrant, then you've, you've gotten a very significant and unhelpful step toward dehumanizing the very people who you have to understand and humanize at an eye-to-eye level. And I think you have a generation of Israelis who understand that there is a civil rights revolution component, if I can return to that, to dragging Israel out of the really terrifyingly dark place. Uh, and I think this is shared by, by many, many Jewish people who really care about Israel, who are concerned for Israel, who maybe don't share my, the details of my critique, but they see the dark place it's in. Many Israelis who've never felt so worried about the future of the country. But I think from that common concern, we might also be able to build a, 
the beginnings of a common critique. And I also think that on the Palestinian side, there there is a, and it's not just generational, but it is also generational, generational, an understanding that this has to go beyond narrow Palestinian nationalism. It's not about replacing one system of inequality with another. The kind of ties you see between uh, Palestinian rights activism and folks in the Jewish community in the US, where the economies of scale, the numbers much more uh, allow for that. Uh, the, the, the kind of debates I see all the time that are happening in that space, that's the antidote to despair. Just to finish off, and I don't think we need to necessarily find an answer to this question. I think people all over the world are struggling for answers to this, but you you mentioned the civil rights analogy and obviously the civil rights analogy is very much about taking some degree of democratic control. Are we heading towards a crossroads, do you think? Is the age-old question as to whether a state can be Jewish and democratic, regardless of which way you think we should take on that crossroads, does it feel like we're getting there? Is, that, is this the tension that we've been trying to bridge for this whole conversation? Is, that, is there a chance we're arriving at that crossroads now, do you think? Part of me does tend to think so. I, I think it, it, that's part of what I mean also by overreach on the right. I, I think they've kind of forced this mm-hmm. front and center of the agenda in ways that are working for them right now, but in ways that may not work for them uh, over the long term. And, and that's where a, a standard liberal response standard in terms of the 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 historical narratives around this conflict mm. a standard liberal response really feels um not fit for purpose mm. not up to scratch and i and i think that may create openings and that may be the 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 very um getting to that tension may be a, a, a quite uh liberating mm. and healthy moment actually also for also I, I would say for Jews who care about Israel who are outside of Israel. Yeah. Well, Daniel, it's been a really difficult but interesting <laughs> conversation as I think we would have expected it to be. But uh, thanks so much. For Thank you so us. much, Stefan. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks to our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.